Unthinkable is made possible by Make What Matters, my membership group for creators. Make What Matters is where people like you and me get and give feedback, share techniques to elevate our projects, and learn how to ship more and better work. Or as one of our members recently told me, it's where lone wolves get to go to be among fellow lone wolves. Today, I want to thank Kristen LaFrance, a marketer from Shopify who loves teaching the craft of podcasting, and Jeremy Enns, an agency owner who shares incredible insights and freely offers his work for group feedback, as well as comedian and writer Matt Ruby, who has suggested more books and blog posts and sources of inspiration than I can count, none of which I knew ahead of time. Thanks to the financial and emotional support of people like them, I can make this show for you and keep it free. Thanks to Kristen, Jeremy, Matt, and all of our members. If you're ready to level up your creativity with others who aspire to make things that make a difference in their careers, join us. Learn more at makewhatmattersgroup.com. A friend of mine is a writer and a marketer who loves to teach others how to write and how to be a better marketer. Let's call this friend John because that's his real name. A few weeks ago, he called me with an issue. He felt completely and utterly tapped creatively. He had nothing left to offer his subscribers. For almost a year, he'd spent several days per week sharing tips and tricks, processes and frameworks, big ideas and tiny techniques. And he felt like he'd just shared everything he knew about writing and marketing over that year. He and I talked a while, and what we realized was that he was facing a really common but pretty hidden issue that a lot of us face when we want to elevate our work and make what matters. See, he'd shared everything he already knew about his craft. In some cases, things he'd known for years. And that was it. Together, we realized, as creative people, what if, instead of sharing what we already know with certainty, we share things we'd like to know, or things we're wondering, or things we're just now learning? What if creating more meaningful things doesn't mean having all the right answers, but instead, it means asking better questions? After all, your knowledge is finite, but your curiosity is infinite. And if you're driven by curiosity, the stuff you're dying to know, rather than your existing knowledge, the stuff you already know, you never run out of ideas. But I get it. We often feel this urge to gather up all the answers we think we need to create something, rather than create something to find answers. We try to act like completed products rather than what we really are, lifelong works in progress. There we go again, trying to convey credibility or build an audience by handing down wisdom from on high as if we know all there is to know about whatever we talk about. And forget about saying, I don't know, or I was wrong. Why do we act like that? And why did my friend John need an hour-long call with me to figure out something that, in retrospect, kind of felt obvious to both of us once we talked it out? Why do we place such a premium on being the person who has the answers rather than the person who's great at asking questions? It's all because we're trying so desperately to be experts. On the show today, the problems with expert overload or expert obsessing and how a best-selling author and separately a scientist both feel about this notion of expertise. Also, a rally cry to all of us to make the switch from acting like experts to acting like investigators from relying so much on our limited knowledge to creating our best work thanks to our endless curiosity. It's all so simple to say, but it has to be hard to actually do, right? Yes? No? 
I, I don't know. I, I'm curious about it all. You see, you see what I did there? Huh? 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 Ah, it's great to be back making new episodes of this show. Here we go. It's new, it's different, it's curious. It's unthinkable. Stories of people questioning conventional thinking to make what matters most. I'm Jay Akunzo. Unbelievable amount of experts. I met, I mean, I've only been here eight hours. I met, uh, I met a financial expert, I met a sales expert, I met two people who are dog experts. Two people. That's the voice of author and speaker Andrew Davis. I met fitness experts. I met health. I met a nutrition expert who's also a coach. I actually met a lot of coaches that are experts. I met a coach who was an expert in coaching coaches on how to coach other experts. (laughs) Experts are everywhere. Drew earns a living helping business owners and marketers embrace the power of curiosity to grow their businesses and leave their legacies. He's spoken in front of thousands of people at a time and has been hired to speak to brands like Disney, IBM, and GE. He's also acutely aware that we're living in a time of expert overload. Here's more from that same speech you just heard a little taste of, where he's speaking to a room full of his peers, public speakers, authors, coaches, and, well, experts. We've been told that there's a very simple formula for success. All we have to do is is become an expert by using our experience and our time doing that thing to become an expert. And what ends up happening is you constantly have a next thing you need to do to get the experience to become the expert. Like if I write a book, I'll be an expert. If I work a little longer, I'll be an expert. If I work for a bigger brand, maybe, then I'll be considered an expert. I need a bigger brand under my belt. There's always another excuse when you're looking for experience. I don't think we actually believe we need the experience or we want to be an expert. I think that's a stand-in for what we actually believe. We believe we can't unless we seem more credible. We seem invulnerable. We seem like we have all the answers. So we must need more expertise. But telling others we're credible by citing our bio is not nearly as powerful as showing up in the moment and proving it. Deliver a great experience. Actually teach. Actually inspire. Actually help other people. At that point, nobody's going to ask to see the logos on your LinkedIn. I think there's a really simple way to get over feeling like you need to be an expert. Instead of thinking you need to be an expert, I think you need to become a visionary. If you want to fill minds, fill auditoriums, fill your pipeline with business, don't be an expert. There, there, there are millions of them. <laughs> become a visionary. And I know there's someone back there right now. Maybe you're up in the balcony because you don't like to sit up front. And you're like, all right, Drew, this is Derek Great. You know, I get it. I have that voice inside my head, too. But this visionary thing sounds fluffy. I like the credibility and the expertise. I have a lot of experience, my friend. That's how I get up on the stage, my friend, buddy. You better show me how to become a visionary. All right, Peter. Here's the deal. It's really simple. If you want to make a leap, you need to ask a question that Google cannot answer. 
You see, experts follow a path, and that path never ends. There's always one more thing you're supposed to do. But visionaries embark on a quest. That quest is, is sparked by the questions they ask. And experts prescribe a solution. They prescribe the solution. They say these are the five things you must do if you want to be successful. Visionaries present a solution. They know this isn't the answer. They're on a journey to find out how to best answer this question, and they hope you go on the journey with them. At the end of the day, experts build lists, and visionaries build legacies. We'll hear more from Andrew Davis in a future episode of the show. In the spring of 2021, I caught up with Shane Snow, who had just escaped New York City mid-pandemic and traveled to Columbia, where he and wife Sylvia spent time relaxing, exploring, and writing a pilot for a TV show, often from a coffee shop. A coffee shop, you say? In the middle of a pandemic? Why, yes. Turns out Columbia fared much better than the U.S. at all this mess. Shane Snow knows a thing or two about how to face uncertainty by turning to the science. Wouldn't that have been nice from the start, America? Anyways, Shane is the author of three pop psychology books and has written for GQ, Fast Company, Wired, and The New Yorker. Shane is widely respected as an expert in his topics of choice, but I've never met someone so aware of the limits of their own knowledge and also so fueled by endless curiosity. Uh, have you ever had Halo Top ice cream? Uh, yes. I, it was a while ago, and I, I remember trying it because I was like, oh, a low-calorie ice cream, and I eat way too much to begin with, and it was fine. So, before Halo Top was popular, when it was only in uh, specialty grocery stores in Southern California, it was this tiny company with like three people. A buddy of mine who's a personal trainer uh, took me to one of these grocery stores, and we ate a pint of it uh, together because he wanted to basically make this point that you can make ice cream that's healthy because it's like high protein, high fiber, I forget what else. But uh, so I did this and I thought it was kind of ridiculous. But then I did the math and realized that if you ate five or six pints of that a day, (laughs) you would get so much protein that you could still go to the gym and so few calories that you would lose weight. And so I, uh, I was writing for GQ as a correspondent there at the time. So I pitched my editor on this idea of doing an ice cream diet for a couple of weeks. And, uh, and you know, he loved it. And so I ate only Halo Top ice cream for 10 days is what it was. And I interviewed nutritionists uh, and, you know, and trainers and basically people who all said, you are going to get sick. You're not getting vitamins. This is unhealthy. Don't do this. Please don't tell people to do the ice cream diet. But sure enough, after 10 days, I had lost 9.9 pounds <laughs> and I had canker sores all over my mouth and I was deficient in a bunch of things. But and but and part of it was I was going to the gym every day, but, uh, you know, I didn't die and I lost a bunch of weight. And so I wrote this story about really the point was just because it's ice cream doesn't mean that it's everything that you have preconceived about ice cream. And eating a pint of this stuff that's 200 calories and has you know 30 grams of protein a day would not make you fat. 
you know, it's better than eating a granola bar in absolute terms. It's not a meal. It's not a good diet. But anyway, after that, uh, it was one of the most popular things I'll ever write in my career. You know, millions of people read it. I right after it came out, as it was getting spread, I was at dinner and some ladies at the table next to me started talking about, have you heard about this ice cream diet? Yeah, there's this guy that <laughs> ate only ice cream and lost 10 pounds. And it's like you hear it everywhere. So that's that's what that is. But it's it falls in a category of journalistic endeavors that I've done a lot, which basically is investigations into things that other people aren't investigating, some of which are silly, but often what I'm trying to do is find some deeper point in them. Most of Shane's investigations are into slightly more serious topics, like the psychology of teamwork, or the science of story, or unearthing government corruption. Yeah, so I started a foundation for non uh, nonprofit for investigative journalism, basically to fund investigations that newspapers couldn't afford because they take too long or cost too much. And uh, and so we had a team there. There's still a couple of people working on it, but we you know we got some donations. We had a team and we worked on some of these investigations. The biggest one that I've done on my own in investigative journalism is one that came out last year, where we unearthed old radio recordings that the CIA had broadcast in Guatemala in the 1950s, where they basically did this terror campaign, like War of the Worlds, where they convinced Guatemala City that a civil war was going on. And uh, and it was all a CIA hoax. I actually feel a lot of pressure to have what I spend my time on matter. And so some of these things like the ice cream, you know, in a way feels like playing video games. Like, what are you doing with your life? You're playing video games. Like I should be working. I should be doing something meaningful for the world. Uh, and, uh, and part of that is my personality. We all deserve a break and to have fun, you know, that helps us not go crazy so that we can do the work we are meant to do. But I do feel that pressure a lot. I would say what I have told myself over the years is that if all I did was focus in my lane, Shane's mostly known as a business innovation author and speaker, then I couldn't possibly become better than the best person in that lane. I couldn't possibly become more creative than someone who's been working harder than me, who's more talented than me. However, if I explore outside of that lane, even if that thing that I'm exploring doesn't matter, what I'm learning in that journey can help me import ideas or heuristics or perspectives into my primary lane so that I can be more clever than whoever is in there. And, and uh, that's kind of been my philosophy. I mean, it aligns with some of what I've written in my, my books about how you know, innovation works. For me, anything that I embark on as a exploration or an investigation or practicing when I'm embarking on it, I'm telling myself there's going to be something that I'm going to learn that will at some point pay off in some area of my work, whether 10 years from now, 50 years from now, or next week. And uh, and so I'm going to keep my eyes out for that so that I can make connections. And then I don't feel so guilty doing the ice cream article. With the Guatemala thing, it started because my wife and I, who is my collaborator on the project, 
We went to Cuba because we were trying to hunt down a woman who was kind of a behind-the-scenes mastermind in the Cuban Revolution who doesn't get credit for what she did. And she kind of was this noble person that turned out a little bit Breaking Bad. And in the course of working on that story, what we thought was going to be an amazing you know, biography of this woman, we realized that uh, there wasn't as much there as we had hoped. But in the course of that, we learned some things that then led us to the Guatemala story. Framing my identity as an explorer is one of my identities. It really helps with that because part of what you do as an explorer is you learn, you try to be places, feel things, see things, for you to be able to go back home and teach people something. Today, Shane is considered one of the world's foremost experts on what makes teams successful and innovative. Why do some teams thrive while others fall apart? Anyone on a team wants to know that, and good news, you can just go ask Shane, because he's the author of the best-selling book, Dream Teams. But how he got there, his process, his path to that public perception of being an expert, well, that all looked a lot less like the globetrotting speaker and celebrated writer that others see as an expert, and a lot more like some of the stuff that, regardless of your own experiences, you can do too. I became fascinated with the idea of immigrant behavior. That was really what it was. There's, you know, there's a cleaner version of the story and there's a more kind of business-oriented version of the story. But really what it was is there were a few things that I was seeing, but what was going on with immigration in America? People are afraid of their neighbors when they come from different places. That's not a news story. So I was, I was interested in what certain groups do to become accepted, to succeed, why some have a harder time when they're immigrants, whether it's circumstantial or the decisions they make or whatever. And I was interested in these stats around how communities that have lots of immigrants tend to have lots of small businesses and produce lots of patents but also have lower voter participation and more fear of crime. Not more actual crime, but more fear of crime. So that was really what I was uh, interested in. And I I just wanted to understand uh, that topic. So I went in really deep. And then because I was running a business and because I'm a business and psychology writer, I wanted to eventually see if I could connect dots between what I was learning about immigrant behavior and non- geographic immigrant scenarios, basically. You know, what can we learn from groups of immigrants that move to a place, are hated, and then succeed spectacularly? So, uh, so, so stopping right there, yeah. at this point in your process, have you created anything? Like, have you shipped any work using these ideas? Not at all. I'm having conversations with friends at bars. Uh, I, I'm calling up a few interesting people, you know, professors who, you know, I called up a professor who studied uh, the myths around Asians in America during the 1900s, just to kind of understand things. I read some books. So yeah, none of it was uh, goal-oriented at that point, other than to understand. And I had in my head that there was something, understanding that topic could probably be an interesting way to understand humans and understand, I guess, uh, human connection and biases and maybe even business better. Because, you know, business is all about transactions between people and 
so are communities. And, uh, you know, that's as an immigrant, you're being thrown into one. So that's that's how it started. And at a certain point, Shane realized that this applied more broadly to teams. This is about understanding how communities integrate and, and work well together or or don't. If you think about community with immigrants and non-immigrants as a team with some goals that are different, some goals that are the same, that's really interesting. And so that is what eventually led to you know, the business stuff and the story that I usually tell, which is that at the same time I was running a team and I was insecure about you know how to get different people to get along and do their best work and all that, which definitely was going on. But that was when I started doing the distillation and the applying rather than just the trying to understand and uh, connect dots. So just to make sure you caught that, what Shane is saying is that when he eventually wrote the book and eventually explained the origin of the idea for the book, he'd always point to his own experience running a team. Yeah. He was struggling to get people to work well together and wanted to know more about how teams work or don't work. And that story makes sense. It's a nice linear path. It's the expert's path. It's the story Shane can tell because it is true, but it's only part of the real story. The real story took months, if not years, of being curious rather than being the expert. To use Andrew Davis's term, the visionary embarked on a quest. It's not a linear path. And the quest leads to all kinds of things that were you to try and explain them to others, it might not make much sense. It's a messy process of hacking through a jungle, not a step-by-step process where, you know, you're doing the work, gathering tons of experience and expertise, then you observe a problem or you're asked a question, and then you come up with the answer, pulling from your lifetime of experience. No, Shane had far more questions than answers. Again, to quote Andrew Davis, he would ask questions Google couldn't answer. Certainly not with a nice, neat box at the top of the search results. But of course, Shane investigates with a purpose. We've heard him say that. He wants his work to matter and to help people. It can't just be a nice exploration that's fun. There's a time and a place for that, for sure. It has to eventually help people. It has to lead somewhere. So here is how Shane would start to put his ideas to the test, how he would enlist other people in his world to join his quest, sometimes without them even realizing it. I started working in some of what I was learning and talking points into presentations I was giving about innovation, which was the topic of you know a previous book. And, uh, and so that's where I was starting to road test material. A lot of it was just conversations. I'm trying to remember what the first thing I did write about this was. Um, the, the thing that my agent said, my literary agent, when I was working on this project, because he was, as soon as it got to a little bit closer to the business stuff, I started talking to him about it. And, uh, you know, over the course of the year, I, I eventually made it into something that, uh, that could be a book proposal. And he described it as the uh, really flattering analogy, actually, as Michelangelo chipping away at the marble and finding the David inside rather than planning to make a statue. He found the statue. That's what my agent described uh, the process as. And, uh, you know, I was like, yes, I am Michelangelo. (laughs) Not at all. But uh, but that's which I think is actually a better analogy than any of the things I've said so far in this in this episode. So much I took away from that just now. Shane starts to integrate new findings and ideas into his existing work. We all have existing work. We can all start to imbue those things with new ideas to test them. Partly 
that helps us force ourselves to articulate the ideas out loud or in writing. And in doing so, it sharpens our thinking because we're refining how we communicate. And also by articulating those ideas, we find new questions or avenues that we need to investigate and pursue. But in addition to that personal intellectual benefit, there's also a resource benefit. We don't need to find any additional time or dollars to start pursuing something new. It can be as simple as finding little pockets in existing projects you're already creating to test out your new ideas. An opening line here, an anecdote there, a quick conversation with a friend, a single slide, a moment in an episode. This is all a form of lowering the stakes, another concept that Shane talked to us about. We can imbue the existing work with new material, new ideas, to improve our own communication of those ideas, and to get feedback from the audience as well. But in all the stuff that we just heard from Shane, there's one realization that emerges from all of this, which I just can't shake. Shane is an expert about teams and how teams thrive in business, right? But he's only considered an expert by others. He only has that credibility and that aura of being correct in his ideas because he was wrong a lot first. In getting feedback constantly and early, and for little low-stakes pieces of the work, he was proactive about trying to figure out where he was wrong. So maybe these people that we call experts, they're only considered experts by others. Because the moment you start to believe you're an expert is the moment you stop pursuing curiosity. True experts, or at least experts worthy of following and learning from, are only considered experts by others. Because all they did was get something correct in a few infrequent, very public projects. But in all these lower stakes, pockets, parts, and pieces of their projects, they were wrong more often than they were right. They tested their ideas, talking to friends, saying things like, I think, and I could be wrong here, but what about this? The whole while, they're opening up themselves for others to say, eh, I don't know. Now, the final product of that journey might represent a whole bunch of answers sent to you by a person that you now consider an expert. It's the book. It's the podcast. It's the completed product. But they're only able to deliver that to you by admitting early and often that they had way more questions. They had to be bad for a long time to be good, wrong about a lot to be right about a little. And all you can judge them on is the final piece where they were right a little. So maybe being an expert is more about perception than reality. It's what others think of us. It's not how we should ever think or feel ourselves. So in taking my cues from Shane, I wanted to continue this exploration to understand something further. I thought to myself, wait a sec, in our society, there's a literal label that some people carry around as part of their name, which brands them as the pinnacle of expertise in something. PhD. over here okay it's ironic that we're talking about like expertise versus creativity because on my wall behind me you see like four or five different like diplomas which is like the the epitome of what society considers to be expertise and what it means right the mark of someone trying to say I'm credible. Take me seriously. Exactly. And 
And I have to have these behind me for my patients so they feel like, oh. I called up Dr. Jade Wu, sleep psychologist and researcher at Duke University's School of Medicine. You kind of have society's most recognizable stamp of the expert on your name now, which is PhD. Yeah. So I guess my first question is, you have a PhD. Do you feel like an expert? Uh, <laughs> that question really stumps me. I think I'm an, uh, I'm a evolving expert, growing expert. I don't know what expert means. Can you define that for me? I I was hoping you could. I mean, there's there's <laughs> academic there are academic definitions I've mm-hmm. uncovered. Like twenty plus years in the field, you know, be, makes you an expert. But if I were trying to say tell a story and have credibility to it. I would say, well, I talked to Dr. Jade Wu of Duke University. She's a PhD in psychology and studies sleep science and has been published in all these. Like, I would basically start listing out all these marks of the expert applying to your career. Yeah. Where you work, the credential you have, which very few people have been able to attain, um, publications like gatekeepers you've gotten through. So it's not a definition, but there's definitely like the traits I can notice which qualify you in the minds of the collective consciousness in our society as an expert versus me because maybe I read six articles and wrote two posts, right? So I guess like that to me is like, that's what, isn't that what a PhD is for? You're now an expert or no, you don't feel that way. I feel that way in the sense that I like to share my expertise. So I like to share my knowledge. I like to share the things that I spent a lot of time learning and exploring and trying to figure out. So I like to share that. So in that sense, I am an expert. And by the way, there's one more stamp on my name, which is that I am now board certified in behavioral sleep medicine, which is like, literally, there's not another exam I can take. There's not another set of letters I can add to my name to go further in my field. So technically, I think I am at the peak of expertise in my field, technically, but I'm still always learning. I'm always finding new things. What did it take you to get your PhD? Like, what is that process actually like? And I, by the way, I have, for, this is for, for you, the listener. I, I know you, Jade, because you're friends with my wife originally, Zandra. Like, yep. you got your PhD together at, at Boston University. So I've had a front row seat to what it took, <laughs> what it took to get a PhD, both for you and for her. Uh, there's a lot I can say, but you're, you're far more uh, familiar with the process than I was. <laughs> So you uh, you were playing the game. I was in the front row. So walk me through what it actually took you to get your PhD. Well, first of all, Jay, bless your heart for being a partner to someone who went through that process. It is not easy on you either. So let's <laughs> acknowledge that. So what it took for me to get my PhD, I had to do really well in college. Uh, I had a 3.95 GPA, summa cum laude from Cornell University. And that gave me the opportunity to apply for research assistantships at NIH and Mayo Clinic, where I got more experience, which allowed me to apply for graduate school. And uh, that was, oh my gosh, that was a huge long process in and of itself of at least six months of hard work just to apply to graduate school. And also thousands of dollars, by the way, of money I didn't have as a 21-year-old flying around the country going to interviews. I was very lucky uh, to be offered a position at Boston University as a graduate student. I spent five years there. Um, and what do you do in, in the five years at BU? What's actually happening there? Classes, work, a bit of both? Classes, 
teaching, research, a crap load of networking, mm. uh, a crap load more of clinical work, and applying constantly applying to get more funding. What's an example of a class you would take as a PhD candidate, as a doctoral candidate? Oh my gosh. Uh, Let's say assessment, adult assessment. So we spent a whole semester talking about the theory and the practice of assessing adults for psychopathology. And that was one of three assessment classes we had, uh, not counting the clinical practica that we did in assessments. What did, what, uh, what did that mean? (laughs) (laughs) So I'm a clinical psychologist and a big part of my job is to assess whether somebody has psychopathology or not, whether they are experiencing symptoms of psychological illness. And it turns out it's a lot more complicated than asking, how do you feel? You know, how do you feel about that? Tell me about your parents. Tell me about your parents. Tell me about all the screwed up things that your parents did that made you this way. It's not really like that. There are actually very scientific and very systematic ways that we assess people, um, that we evaluate them, that we try to basically get at what it is that they're experiencing that's stopping them from living a good life. So four years of excelling as an undergrad, five years of study and practice at BU, and then Jade and her peers have to complete an internship year. And when you say internship, Most people in the world think, oh, you're grabbing coffee for somebody. You're like coming in, just shadowing people. As an intern in clinical psychology, you're basically getting paid nothing to do professional level work. I was seeing patients. I saw probably about 25 patients a week. Uh, This was at Duke University School of Medicine. I was working at the cancer center, the fertility center, um, the behavioral sleep medicine clinic, doing all sorts of things. At this point, after the internship year, Jade Wu is now Dr. Jade Wu, or Jade Wu PhD. But she still can't quite get the quote-unquote real job, because after the intern year is a postdoctoral job, aka postdoc. Where I was seeing more patients, also at Duke, in that year I focused on sleep and perinatal mental health, and after that I've been working as a research scientist at Duke. It's a long period of time. And it's really freaking hard. In my career, I've worked for Google and worked for tech startups before building my own creator business as a content entrepreneur. Everyone around me, everybody in tech and business and entrepreneurship, everybody thinks that we work so hard. And then I witness what people like my wife and Jade go through. That path requires genuine sacrifice, a ton of hard work, and wine. Lots of very cheap wine. You know two buck chuck? Yeah. Like $2.99 wine from Trader Joe's. So, oh my gosh, that was our fuel. We would pop one of those bottles in the lab, clink glasses, drink, do meta-analysis, data scraping, cry a little bit, laugh a little bit, drink a little bit, and do some more data scraping. One of those three wasn't a little bit. (laughs) The crying, the laughing, or the drinking. Which one was not actually a little bit? Come on, Jade. Oh... The drinking and the data scraping, there was a lot of both of those. (laughs) The work you do now, could I have that job without getting a PhD? 
No. Do you need the PhD? Is there something about actually getting it or is it a, is it a system that's just the way we've always done it? Could I self create recreate using online tools, publicly available information, networking to peers? Like if I had crazy amounts of time, no concerns about money, which also you still have to have when you, you get a real PhD, by the way. <laughs> of course. Uh, or you need a, a spouse who works in the corporate world. Um, crazy amounts of time, no concern about money, and just a whole lot of hustle and elbow grease. Could I have recreated what you guys went through? Uh, albeit it would be pretty backbreaking. But but could I, could I learn to do what you do without getting a formal PhD? Everything that you said, all of those resources, plus very generous mentors who have been through it, then yes, you could gain the skills that you need to do the work that I do. But the other part that you were talking about, the gatekeeping, the the system of this is how we've always done it, you would not be able to, you would not be allowed to see a patient in a real healthcare system. You would not you would have a very hard time publishing a peer review paper, even if you have the same skills that I do. Hey, just want to cut in here quick. Do not get any kind of therapy or even advice from people who are not credentialed and trained to actually treat your mental health. Just wanted to be crystal clear on that. The next thing I wanted to ask Jade was about creativity's role in science. I would say science is extremely creative and there's a lot of intuition that you need to ask good good questions. You know, anybody can, not anybody, but anybody very educated in, say, doing statistical analysis can run an analysis if you tell them what to do. But to ask the right questions, to ask the useful questions and to generate hypotheses that are both new and useful and interesting that actually takes a lot of um, je ne sais quoi and a lot of experience. So, okay, let me try to interpret this. You correct me if I'm wrong here. Your study and research and teaching and mentorship and the years of practice, the years of getting that PhD and working essentially as an indentured servant to <laughs> other organizations for not enough pay, uh, all of that made you an expert so that you can ask questions? Because I thought experts know answers and hand out, hand out answers. But you're saying the expertise helps you ask better questions. Absolutely. I think if someone claimed to be an expert, but mostly they gave statements and they told other people what to think or what to do and they didn't have good questions, I wouldn't call them an expert. Because when you're a real expert, when you really know what you're talking about, you find that everything that you learn generates three more things you don't know that you're curious about that you just have to figure out. And sometimes you can't figure it out without launching on a years long odyssey to figure it out. And sometimes figuring it out means taking a really long time to figure out what is even the right question to ask. So absolutely, I think people who are real experts are just bursting at the seams with questions. That explanation from Jade seems to bring experts down from the pedestal, which, let's face it, we've mostly put them on. But at the very same time, it makes it seem pretty audacious to look at the world around you, ask important questions about it, and then essentially think, I'm the person who's going to figure this out. That's what any of us do when we act like explorers, when we try to make something that makes a difference. And that's what Jade does with all of her research. So is there like a synapse that doesn't fire correctly in your brain that like lets you do that? Like what, 
what is it about you that you're like, I'm, you're going to raise my hand, your hand and say, yeah, I'll ask that question. I'll, I'll go on that journey. Now that you put it like that, I'm a little worried because it kind of makes it seem like you have to be a little bit arrogant or a little bit narcissistic even to put yourself in that position. And I think you really do have to because like, who am I to say there's literally no knowledge on this in the world? Nobody knows about this, but I'm going to create this piece of knowledge and I'm just going to do it. That actually, I think, takes a lot of balls, for lack of a better way of putting it. And, or maybe it's this, it's either a little bit of arrogance or the curiosity and the itch of I need to know is just so strong that it overrides any sanity of like, who am I to look into this? Like other people haven't, why would I? That I think is a reasonable question for all of us to ask, you know, who am I to do this? And, you know, sometimes when we ask that too much, we have imposter syndrome, but I think there has to be a voice that's louder that overrides that, that says, I just need to know. We've come a long way, but there's something that still isn't sitting right with me, which is the archetypical profile of the expert. It still looms so large in our society, in our industries, in our communities, in our culture. Somebody who says, I have the answers, and someone who's revered as being correct more often than they're wrong, that person still seems pretty powerful. It's one thing to say, yeah, we should pursue our curiosity. We should ask questions and value the asking of questions more than the having of answers. Let's reward explorers over experts. But aren't certain systems and society at large still set up to reward the person who's more hardened than that? Who's the expert that professes to have the answers? I think about the business executive or the partner at the firm who used to do your job and they did it so well that they got promoted or they became a consultant or an investor. And so now they want you to do your job their way. I think of the crusty old professor, just a couple of years from retiring, who doesn't want to hear any new way of doing anything. These people and others like them seem powerful in some way, but Jade sees them as something else too, afraid. Because I think people fear new things or fear the unexplored or, you know, that professor who's a couple years from retiring that you're talking about, they've built a distinguished career. Everybody looks up to them. And at this point, they're afraid that if they step out of line and do something wrong or something unconventional, then they'll ruin their legacy of everything they've done before. How do you then create a scenario, a society, an industry, an organization, a team where that person is revered because they celebrate the new and welcome the possibilities. And they, they are wise and viewed as that, that sage voice because they can teach you that meta lesson, not you have to do it this way. And that's what makes me an expert. I know the right answer, but instead they know how to inspire others to figure out possibilities, right? That fostering of creativity and curiosity instead of the shutting down in favor of my way, like, how do we get there? How do we get to the place where the person at the top of your field is like, 
It's actually not about knowing the rules. It's about doing the work for what it's for. And it's for this. And if you have a new way of doing that, we should celebrate that. Oh my gosh, that's such a brilliant question. A very, very good question. The person, that magical unicorn person you're talking about, that's Dr. Fauci. I love him for so many reasons, but let me tell you about something you may not know about him. Okay. So he is was a professor at Harvard. And one day I learned about this thing that made me tear up and almost cry, which is there was a guy who was an undergrad, like a lowly undergrad who doesn't really matter in the echelons of the research world. He was writing a thesis and Dr. Fauci was like not even his advisor. He didn't have a class with him. There was no reason why Anthony Fauci had to help this guy. And he reached out to Dr. Fauci and said, hey, you don't know me, but I wrote a thesis and I'm proud of it, but I would love to have your feedback. Can you please read this? I know you're super busy. No worries of not. And Anthony Fauci not only read it, but returned it with just glowing feedback, encouraging this young man to continue to explore his scientific curiosity and giving also really specific constructive feedback for some things he could consider in his thesis. And this this selfless encouragement of curiosity from a senior researcher to a young Padawan, I think this is the exact kind of thing we need. And not only in terms of mentorship, Anthony Fauci, back in um, the days way before COVID, he was an AIDS researcher, and he was on the front lines in the early days of AIDS. And when this was becoming a, a big thing in people's consciousness, he didn't just sit in his ivory tower and look at previously published research to say, how are we going to handle this epidemic? He actually went to gay clubs. He went to gay bathhouses. He went to community organized events to talk to activists. And he was swayed by their arguments. He had his mind changed and he was very humble and very okay with admitting that I had no idea that this was their experience. You know, I was on the wrong side of history to begin with. They were on the right side of history. And here's what I need to do to amend those wrongs. I think that attitude from someone who was already an expert, who was the head of, I believe, the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Disease, um, someone who is in that position has, in a way, earned their right to just sit back and say, obviously, I'm an expert in this area. Look at all the credentials I have and all the positions I have. But he didn't sit up there on his throne. He came down into the real world to not only use a scientific method, but to use his empathy and to use his curiosity. And I think he is one of the most inspiring scientists because of that. When an expert says, I can teach you to be rich. I can teach you to succeed. I can help you do that. I have the secrets. I can show you. They're being insecure. They're making it all about them. They're necessarily putting themselves above everyone else because they're the expert. And any questioning that they couldn't do what they're professing or any questioning that they don't have the answers is a knock to their credibility because their credibility is built on having the answers. And when your work is informed only by the things you're certain of, not the things you're curious about or willing to be wrong about, you're destined to run out of ideas or else to have to lean into your own ego and puff it up and make it seem grander to the rest of the world to try and create some kind of trust. 
inevitably you stagnate as the world passes you by. Instead, what if you could draw your confidence not from the answers you have, but the questions you ask? This hardened, overly self-assured expert is insecure. But people like Jade Wu or Shane Snow, explorers, I think they're the ones with actual creative confidence. We talked quickly. We, you joked about the four degrees behind your head right now on, on the wall of your office. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. That's a shortcut for your patients. It's a shortcut to trust. Is there an explorer's shortcut to trust? Is there a curious person's shortcut to trust? Is there something that like you can emblazon on a wall or quickly say and convey? That to me gives the aura of the expert the upper hand. And, and would persist the very thing we're trying to perhaps poke at. So is there a shortcut to trust when you, when you say, no, I'm actually an explorer. I'm, I'm more curious. I have more questions than answers. I think yes, but it's not something you hang on a wall. It's something that you see in their face, in their eyes. When you ask them a question, do they light up and get excited? Do they ask questions? Are they willing to take a pause and look up, you know, into the, corner and think, hmm, I'm not sure, or I don't know, let me look into that. I Because I think the opposite of jealously hoarding this title of expert by saying, I do know everything, or by pretending that you're always right, I think that's actually a sign of insecurity. I mean, in my work as a psychologist, if I see someone really sort of rigidly and stubbornly hanging on to their point of view, that says to me fear. That says to me anxiety and insecurity and lack of trust in themselves. So I think it's actually, if someone is doing that and they're saying, you know, of course I know better than you do because I'm older and wiser and more credential than you, that's actually a bad sign. They're really insecure. My strong opinion, I could be wrong, you know, there's, there's got to be cases where this is, is not the case, but my strong opinion is that as early as you can, getting feedback, exposing yourself to feedback in ways that are low stakes so that your ego doesn't get involved is really, really helpful. One other thing I'd say on this is I know some people that they will not make a decision without polling a million friends, you know, without collecting data. and. That's not creativity either. That's like an over-reliance. You're not doing any exploring. You're not doing any kind of, of creative thing there. You're just eliminating the risk entirely. For me, what helps is break down the thing so that when you're getting feedback, you're getting feedback on components of it, but you're the one that's assembling it. Uh, I connect this to writing. The best thing that uh, an editor can do on the first pass of, uh, of you know something that I'm writing is tell me what where the problems are. Tell me where it's confusing. Tell me where it's boring. Tell me what doesn't make sense. Not tell me how to fix it. I'm thinking more about this project than you know the person who's reading it is, but I don't see what I can't see. And so that becomes extremely helpful. I think conviction around the way to do something better is dicey. And you know, I, I think the problem with, uh, with a lot of people who set out to build something is they want to build it a certain way. They're not flexible on that. And when you have the conviction on both things, on you know the thing that needs to be solved and how to do it, you got to be lucky. If you have conviction on the thing that needs to be solved and you are adaptable and willing to do whatever it takes because of that conviction, 
that actually gets you more comfortable with making it not about you, more comfortable looking outside of the box to see how to solve it because the solving of the problem is the important part. To have the humility or whatever it is, maybe it's not humility, but it's, you know what? Actually, I would have meant that and say it's the confidence, having the confidence to say, I don't know, but what a fascinating question that is. Or I don't know, and man, I really want to look into that. Like this, this just has to be figured out. It's crazy that no one's ever asked this before and I'm gonna write that wrong. So, is pursuing our curiosity enough to break from conventional thinking and make what matters? Is creating meaningful work as simple as asking better questions? And how many leading questions do I have to ask you before you know exactly where we're headed? The answers are probably not, definitely not, and two. As explorers, we relentlessly pursue our curiosity. But in doing so, we're probably going to encounter this kind of gap in our creativity. On one side of the gap is our creative taste, what we can imagine creating. And then on the other side, the side where we stand, there's our skills, what we can actually create. Often those two things don't match, and so our work disappoints us. So how do we bring our skills all the way through the gap so it meets our taste? And what stops us from doing that? Those questions in a very special type of episode in two weeks. In the meantime, you can subscribe to my free weekly newsletter called Playing Favorites and get one original story and idea from me and a roundup of other things every Friday morning. And you can explore all my work, books, shows, courses, and otherwise at jayakunzo.com. And special thanks to the members of my community group, Make What Matters, whose subscription makes this show possible and keeps its episodes free for everybody else. You can learn more and join our group at makewhatmattersgroup.com. I'm Jay Akunzo, and until we talk again, keep making what matters. See ya.